0: So far, we've seen a a fairly clear picture uh, of the household before the fall. Okay, So this is uh, the the, the pre-fall picture of what we get when we look at uh, before the fall has happened, we see the household and what it looks like. And this week, we're going to uh, analyze the authority structures of the pre-fall household and then see how the fall of man is actually linked directly to this breach of order within the household. In other words, I'm going to show how the fall was actually a result of a disordered household. That's the the main thing that I'm going to be arguing uh, for this morning as we look at Genesis chapter 3. So again, the text is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. It says, Now the serpent was crafty, more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. whom you gave to me to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all all the feasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desires shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And he said to Adam, The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, we come to such a grim text, and we pray that you would help us to understand it rightly. We pray that the posture of our hearts would be receptive and ready to uh, be spoken to, that we would receive your word as being good soil, tilled, ready to hear what you are speaking to us, and that we might have a better glimpse of into your heart as we look to the fall of man, as we see such a tragic event uh, in Scripture. Speak to us, Lord. Guide me as I speak, and I pray that you would be with us all this morning as we sit receptive under your word. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. What we have just read is perhaps the most tragic of all stories ever told. There is not a true story that starts as high as the creation narrative with such poetic outbursts. This is bone at my bones, flesh at my flesh, right? Adam is speaking poetry about the beautiful imagery uh, that comes to him. And, and, And we've never seen such a fall that comes from so high up here to such catastrophic depths. The difference is it's astronomical. This is the mother of all tragedies. Right? This is where it all begins. Okay, We read this and we forget that every tear that we've ever cried, every pain that we have ever suffered, every dreaded, aching loss, it started right here. This was the seed of death sown for all men. All that pain you've ever felt started here. And even that we forget, that, that we now thousands of years later— are feeling the effects of our great, 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 I don't know how many greats, Grandfather Adam. Okay, So it all goes back to Grandpa Adam, which again reminds us that we are not isolated individuals that are born on an island. We are, in a sense, all part of one big family, all going back to our great-grandfather Adam. Now, have you ever wondered why this is? Why you are born a sinner... Feeling these things and in need of grace when you haven't necessarily done anything on your arrival into the earth. Why are you born a sinner? Okay, I'll tell you why. Well, it's the invisible covenantal ties that we've been speaking about all along and in prior sermons. There's this invisible reality that connects us back to Adam, and that is that Adam was a representative head of the human race. Covenantally, we are tied back to Adam in what he did. Okay, This is why uh, Romans 5 speaks of Adam's sins relating to you in this way. It says, One trespass, referring to what we've just read, this one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That's everyone. So, one act of righteousness... Leads to justification in life for all men. Well, who is that talking about? That's talking about Jesus, right? So because of what Jesus has done, that affects all men as well. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Okay? See how this all connects back to the covenant. So headship is what connects us to these two figures, to Adam and to Christ as members of the household of the uh, of mankind adam is our head and we are his body we're all part of this one body but as members of the household of god the church jesus is our head and we are the body of Christ, right? This is familiar to us. We understand in speaking of this ways, but it's more than just a, a metaphor. It's more than just a figure of speech. There's a covenantal reality that I've been arguing along in all these sermons before. So this is the way that Scripture speaks of covenant headship. It's like a body with, the, with a head, and where the head goes, the body follows. Okay? So what we will find here in this garden narrative is this idea of authority and headship. This is where we were last week, and I was kind of introducing us to the topic and getting us ready to be able to receive some of the things that, we've, uh, that we're going to look at today. So when God created Adam, he formed him first from the dust of the ground, and the ground was to be his life's work. Okay? Now we might think nothing of the fact that Adam was created first. This isn't the way that we typically really put emphasis on things, is well, he came first, so there must be something to that. But this is the way that Scripture actually speaks of this. That because Adam was born first, there is a meaning there. Okay? 1 Timothy 2 uh, uh, is where this is deemed important that Adam was formed first. You can turn there in your Bibles, you don't have to. I'll read the scripture. But it says in 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15, and let me warn you, God's word is Offensive many times to our modern ears. It can kind of stifle us. So, this is God's word, not my word. I'm just reading what God's word says to us, but I'm going to make a a, a a meaning come to it out of it as we relate it back to the garden. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority, there's that word, to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Interesting points here, right? Uh, 1 Timothy 2 connects authority back to the fall of man. That's what he's thinking of when he thinks of uh, this authority structure. He thinks of the garden. He thinks of Adam and Eve. But more pertinent to our conversation here, Paul supports the authority claim by saying that Adam was formed first, okay, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. So the New Testament sees this as a significant thing that we should pay attention to. So back in Genesis, we see God did in fact form Adam first. Then he placed Adam in the garden, uh, which we're seeing through this lens of the household. The the garden is a kind of type of household that we're seeing. And in this garden household, he was given the vocational task of working and keeping this garden. This was um, Adam's job, we might say. And amid this garden were all kinds of creatures in need of names right he was to name each creature by taking dominion over them uh, so so there adam stood alone with this monumental authority of working and keeping the garden all the, these commands given to him taking dominion of the entire earth just adam alone and it was not good okay and it was not good last week we looked at the goodness of creation the beauty of creation um, and got a full picture of the household and how it was good but we got to remember that when adam was alone It was not good. Okay? That's what Genesis 2, 18 tells us. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Okay? I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now, what should we take from this? Well, a couple things. First, we should realize that Adam was given rightful authority by God to fulfill his task of working and keeping in the garden, taking dominion, subduing the earth, uh, because he was formed first. Right? The authority was his. It was his job, we might say. It was his responsibility. Okay? But just by himself, that was his responsibility. But second, we should see that he couldn't do a good job of this alone. He couldn't fulfill this task and do a good job. It was not good that he was alone. He, uh, if he didn't need a woman, think of it this way. If he didn't need a woman, God would not have said it was not good that he'd be alone. He would have said, this is good. Man can do it alone. And Adam, there you are alone. No, man needs woman. Okay, this is built into the creational order. Man is dependent upon woman for fulfilling his vocational task of working and keeping. Woman, we might say, is the crutch to a man's authority. He can't really have this authority and carry out the things that he is told to do with about, uh, without leaning on the woman in a real way. She, he is dependent upon her, okay? So she will glorify this authority or degrade it depending upon her submission to him as her head, okay? It's not good that this authority of taking dominion is carried out alone. He needs a helper fit for him. This is the scriptural picture that we see. Now, if it seems like I'm making several unsubstantiated claims, I'd like to show you and help you see from Scripture how I've come to this conclusion about how to view headship and authority as it relates to the household and the garden narrative. If you, if you would, put your finger in your Bible and Genesis 3 and turn forward to the New Testament with me to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16, and I want to show you, um, I want to show you how I'm bringing these things together to paint a better picture for us of the order of the household from the garden. And as you turn there, I will again warn you that everything you're about to read will probably sound offensive to you because we have modern ears, right? We hear things through our cultural context that we live in today that makes us think that well, this doesn't sound right. Okay? But if you believe 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof and instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. If you believe that, if you believe that this is God's word and this is good for us, then there's something to hear here. Okay, we need to listen to what God's Word says to us this morning because this is God's ever-relevant Word to you. It's not just culturally contextual. This is God's Word that stands all throughout time. Okay, There's my caveat. 1 Corinthians 11, 1-16 says this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything... And maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. We'll come back to that in a minute. You maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman... But woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority. Here's that word again. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was or for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature, and come back to that too, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, You might be aggravated about it, but I'm going to completely sidestep the issue of head coverings right now. And if you have any questions about that, I welcome them. You can talk to me after church about it. But my point in going to this passage is to show you a couple of things before we jump back to Genesis and relate the fall to this breach of authority. Okay, so I want to show you a couple of things. Three things. First, verse two shows us Paul is not interested in cultural appropriation. What do I mean by that? Paul is not—he's uh, not concerned with us appropriating ourselves, molding ourselves to culture. Right? It's actually the opposite. His condemnation or con- commendation is that they have kept up with the t- or that they haven't kept up with the times. Right? They have maintained the traditions even as he delivered them to them. Okay, this is his uh, way of saying good job, guys, you're actually doing what I told you to do. You're not changing with the times." So to bring this up to speed, we could just say if Paul looked at the modern church today, in many ways, he would not commend them because they have not maintained the traditions, even as he handed them to the church. Why? Because the, 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 the modern church has deemed the Bible as out of date and brought their religion up to speed with the times. Right? Their religion now matches the times. Paul would question the apostolic succession of many churches today if he stepped in to them. He'd look around and say, this doesn't look like what I was worshiping in. This doesn't look like what we were doing a couple thousand years ago. Okay? He, he would say, I don't commend you for this reason. Okay? And, and realize the context this passage is hedged in with. Directly after, if you're still there in 1 Corinthians, I want you to look at what comes right after this teaching on head coverings and authority structures. Directly after this, he begins to talk about none other than what? The Lord's Supper. Okay, So if this is an antiquated view of headship and authority, and this is expired and something we should throw out, should we throw out the Lord's table too? Just questions to think about. Is, is this something as relevant as the Lord's Supper? That he, he actually starts here and then goes to the Lord's Supper. Okay. So when it comes to the teaching of authority in the household, we need to brace ourselves to be radically jarred. Right? Whoa. When we look at the Bible, this is a, a woe moment. I, I feel it. You feel it all as we read this. It doesn't feel like what we're currently experiencing in our culture. This is not how we think as humans hardly anymore. But I like the way that G.K. Chesterton once put it. He says, we do not really want a religion that is right where we are right. We want a religion that is right where we are wrong. We do not want, as the newspapers say, a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. Okay, This is Chesterton's point. This is over 100 years ago he's saying these things. Okay, And what he's saying is that we should take dominion of the world... Not let the world take dominion of us. We should be leading the world, not the world leading us. Okay? So if God's original order of the household is good, we should be ready to embrace it because it's the only way that we can be world shakers. It's the only way that we can actually move forward in God's order. It's the only way true dominion will work. Okay? So first... Traditional practices of the church should not be tampered with, nor should the underlying basis for those practices be ignored, namely headship and authority. Okay, maybe another day we can get to the practice of what the the underlying uh, understanding and order of headship and authority means, but today I just want you to see the structures there. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay, so there's the first point. The second point is likened to the first. No one can say that this view is out of vogue because the view, is, the view advocated here is based upon nature itself. Okay? He says, does not nature itself teach you in verse 14? So he's rooting his argument in the order of creation, just the way things are. That's the way Paul argues here. So he's making creational arguments with their very roots in the Garden of Eden as he substantiates his claims by talking about who was formed first. Okay, Adam is formed first in authority, then Eve. So second, this order is fixed into creation and nature itself. Okay, so we've looked. Paul says tradition's good, keep it up. He also says, look at nature, there's something to learn there. And finally, number three, if nature and tradition are not f- fixed points of reference enough, do not forget that even God is included in this order of the household in verse three. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of every man and the husband is the head of his wife. And as a side note, we'll get to this more. Notice the distinction uh, between Christ being the head of every man, but only husbands are the head of every wife. In other words, men are not in authority over all women. Okay? I want you to hear that clearly as we move forward. I'm not saying that men are in charge and women, you just need to listen. There, there's something to say here specifically to wives and husbands. So husbands are in authority over their wives, though. That's what uh, Paul says and what God's word says. But, but the point is this. The invisible order of the household is as fixed as God himself because he is included in it. Okay? Do you see that? You can't get away from it. Whether head coverings make this a visible reality or not in our practice— The invisible covenantal reality remains. Authority and headship is inescapably fixed and embedded into the creational order and even carries over into church and God himself. It's it's actually quite profound if you think about how you can't get away from this. Christ doesn't abolish this order when he comes. He substantiates it as he himself assumes headship over man and recognizes his own submission to the Father as his head. Think about that. Jesus is a son, and Jesus understands what it means to be a son, right? We talked about this a little bit last week. So what this tells us is that not even God can escape the order of the household. Jesus is the eternal son of the Father, and with that comes the submission to the Father. So headship is there too. Jesus submits as the body of his father, the head, okay? And we reflect that order as we are made in his image. There is no way around this order. It is who we are and what the world is. That's what I'm trying to get at this morning. So we've looked at the New Testament. Let's go back again to Genesis. If you had your finger there still. Back to Genesis 3. So how is the fall of man a breach of authority then? How can, how can we believe this? Okay. Well, as I said a moment ago, the, the New Testament explicitly links the chronological order of the creation of Adam being first as an authority figure. So because Adam was first, that means something. Okay. He, he is in authority. Also, the creation mandate to work and keep is given to him. Before the woman even enters the picture. So, of course, that is his responsibility. It's his, his authority. And the command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was given to him before the woman arrived on the scene. So all authority on earth was in his hands. Okay, But again, this was not good. Okay? This is an incomplete picture. He needed a helper fit for him. So God presented all the creatures before Adam to name, and none of them filled the gap that Adam had. You get this picture of uh, God and uh, Adam standing in a garden together, and all these animals start coming over, and the goat arrives, and Adam's like, I don't think so, that's, that's not going to work. The sheep comes, the elephant comes. He's like, no way, I, this is not working. We need, some, we need some other arrangement. None of these are fit for me, okay? So then God puts Adam to sleep, that's, that's the story that we get in Genesis 2. We looked at that last week. So uh, Adam puts, uh, is put to sleep, and Eve is created from his side. You Remember, a rib is taken out, and Eve is created from him and for him. This is the language that the Bible uses. In verse 18 and 20, it both say that Eve is a helper fit for him. Okay, You might say she, in a real way, was tailored to him. She completes him, in a sense. The, the way that we sometimes speak about marriage with our wives completing us. This is the image that we get. Then the New Testament says in First Corinthians 11 that man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So when we look at the picture in Genesis Uh, of the garden household, we see Adam as the authority and head who's supposed to be working and keeping the garden that has all the responsibilities attached to it. They're his own, but he needs help. Okay, He needs help doing this. So Eve is created from him and for him to help him fulfill the role of taking dominion, being fruitful and multiplying. They come together as a team in a marriage. This is the household order. It's good. We talked about that last week. And then we come to this week, Genesis chapter three, and we see The fall something changes something shifts here and things go badly wrong then the serpent enters the picture to confuse this relationship as much as possible that's what he's doing now have you ever thought about how the serpent went to Eve instead of Adam think about that the serpent went to Eve instead of Adam you would think that Satan because Satan knew what was going on here Satan isn't stupid you would think that Satan would go straight for the jugular and take out Adam himself. But as it turns out, Eve is Adam's jugular. Right? This is his weak spot because he is so dependent upon her. Satan knows right where to hit Adam to take him down. Okay, So Satan, what he does is he steps in between Adam and Eve to deceive Eve. Okay, to split that up. You've seen people do this before. People's marriages turn one against the other. Make them question things and, and so dissension. That's the way to do it. Satan knows how this works. So he questions Eve about Adam's responsibilities. Did he really say, is that really what's going on here? Now, no doubt the command, it certainly applied to her. But remember, this was Adam's garden and Eve came along to help him in this garden to do what he was instructed to do. So right away, Satan is disrupting this order. He's talking to the wrong person here. He knows what he's doing. Okay? Then notice in Genesis 3:5 what he says. Genesis 3:5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Just let that sink in and think about that. In other words, God's holding you back, Eve. He's holding you back. Now, I want to ask you something, church. Is this not what women are always told? You're being held back. You have greater potential than this. You could, you could do so much more than this. Are you really going to take orders from a man? I've heard that before. Maybe you've heard that before. Adam and God, they're holding back on you from your own potential. Adam and He's in the way, okay? You could be like them. You could be like God if you just ate from this fruit. Now, this is the most tempting of sins to women. That is, of course, there's the underlying sin of rebellion that Adam and Eve are both falling into. But the particular sin here is discontentment. It is exceedingly difficult for women to not strive for more even if it sometimes breaches their God ordained place. I've seen this in my own family, right? You you can watch a woman work herself to death in in ways to sacrifice for her family, but she will kill herself in the process, right? She is always trying to do more, right? You can see it in families, you can see it in all kinds of different structures. But this is this is the the fundamental thing that they have a hard time being there uh, and content with where they are placed, okay? But they aren't the only ones that are sinners, okay? Man's sin is the opposite, okay? If if woman's sin is discontentment, then man's sin is the opposite, it's passivity. I feel this one, okay? A deep indifference that causes men to fail to step up in their God-ordained place. Think about what it would have looked like if Adam had done what he was supposed to and what Eve would have done if she was doing what she was supposed to. You can just see Adam stepping into the garden, and there's this snake there, and he's like, "What are you doing talking to this snake? What is he saying?" Like he, he would have, he would have stopped it right in its tracks. But that's not the story that we see here, is it? We don't see a man stepping up for his wife, defending her, fighting for her. We see a passive man. Okay, that's that's where we see uh, it, it, Adam is in the in the face of t- uh, temptation. We see a dispirited and passive man, and it makes us sad. It makes me sad as we look at this. And we think man this is i feel it in my own bones but also i'm like i'm angry and you can see the fall of man you can feel it as you look at the story so while eve is being deceived he's passively letting her assume authority she works the garden not him she works the garden in a disordered manner and even harvests from the garden but she's harvesting from the wrong tree she's eating of something that she was told not to eat of and it's not like adam was away and unaware He knew what was going on. He knew exactly what was going on. He stood passively by while Satan assumed authority over his wife and lied to her, telling her that she was the one actually going to be benefiting and controlling out of this situation, that she was going to be empowered from this. And then Adam ate from her hand. He knew what was going on, and he was right there the whole time. Okay? So this is what happened. Then you see, as soon as they ate... There's there's this anger that burns in us as we look at this quick picture. But after they ate, you feel the sadness, don't you? Immediately they both realized that they were naked, they were shamed. They felt what they had done, and, and they were scared. Okay. And as God came walking in the cool of the day, I just want you to imagine that picture. Good, beautiful garden. They've just done this, then. God comes walking in the cool of the day, which he probably did frequently. And they were, for the first time, afraid of the presence of God. It shifted. They weren't comfortable anymore. Things were changed. So they hid, like children who were up to no good when their father comes, knowing full well exactly what they've done. They hide behind a tree like that can somehow hide them from their father that knows what's up. This is the picture that we get of Adam and, Eve. and then God called not to them, but as verse 9 says, he called to the man. Did you notice that? He called to the man. Where are you? The same question that every father and husband should be ready to answer when God calls upon them in regard to his family. Where are you, men? So often we would like to point the fingers At the woman and say, well, it's her fault, but where are you? The the, the empty seat at your dinner table, where are you? The empty spot beside your wife in the pew, where are you? In your passivity as you sit back and let things fall into place, where are you, Adam? Where are you, man? Now, why do you think he called for the man and not them both? Or even Eve, because she's the first one that sinned, right? She took the step first. She was the first step of rebellion. Why didn't God go to Eve first? Because Adam was primarily responsible for his family. Adam was the one that was given charge and authority over what was going on here. It doesn't matter who assumed authority. He looked at who was actually responsible. And this is the way that God still works in the world. He looks at the person who's actually in charge, not who says that they are in charge. Okay, Adam had horribly failed, horribly failed to steward, protect and mature the gift that he had been given. And when the Bible looks back at the the original sin, it's surprising. It actually doesn't put the spotlight on Eve, does it? It's always Adam. What did Adam do? Okay, because Adam is the head. And the authority structures are there and always have been there. And because of Adam's failure, we're all made sinners and continue to contribute to this disorder in society and our households because of what your great-grandpa did. That's why. Talk about generational curses. It's true. There's a real sense in which there's a covenantal connection all the way back to Adam. That is why you have the disorder in your household. That is why you have the disorder in your society. So this was essentially a rebellion against the order of the household. And you can see this from God's judgment upon each. He speaks to each of their roles. Let me show you. The serpent is cursed above all livestock. Okay? It, it doesn't eat the harvest of the livestock like the rest of the livestock, right? You, it, it's eating dust from which it came. Okay? You think about like a cow. You, you feed a cow uh, the, the fruits of its labors, right? It's, it's uh, unjust to muzzle uh, an ox and not feed it and to, to let it just go forever, right? But this is the state of the serpent. It's never to rise above this level. And God promises that oh, while he may bruise the heel of man who works the dust, the offspring of the woman will crush his head. There's a promise of the gospel there. People call this the proto-evangelium, this, this first hint of the gospel of how things will be made right eventually. It's not fleshed out, but you just kind of get this hint there from the serpent. But to the woman, he multiplies pain in childbearing. I don't have to explain this to any woman in the room that's had a child. You understand this. I don't understand this, but you understand this, okay? And it also says, not only does he multiply the pain in childbearing, but it says, and he makes her desire for her husband who will rule over her. Now, some translations say different things. Mine, uh, the newer version of the ESV says, contrary to her husband's. The the older translation says, for her husband, okay? And, And some translations say, against her husband. Because that is what the meaning essentially is. Her desire is for her husband's rule. Right? She's wanting what he has. Okay? What kind of curse would it be if her desire was simply for her husband? That's, that's not a curse, That That would be a blessing. I, I would hope that all of the, the women would be for their husbands uh, in the good sense, in their marital sense. But that's not what the curse is speaking out here to The curse is a perpetual tendency to grope for more. Right? to grope for more power. It's the things that you, that, that that feeling you get in your gut as you read 1 Corinthians 11 and you feel stifled and aggravated about those authority structures, that's where that roots back to. If you felt that, there's a reason for that. It's scriptural. It's right there. There's something in us that makes us say, oh, that's cringeworthy. I don't want to say that. Okay? So there's the woman's curse. And to the man, because he listened to the voice of his wife, that's what the, text says not what i said because he listened to the voice of his wife the ground is cursed okay that's his work okay that's the thing that he's been called to do and in pain he is to work and keep it by the sweat of his brow from dust he came and to dust he shall return okay now did you notice how their curse corresponds to their order in the household think about that the serpent as a type of livestock uh, is cursed in his work of helping man produce Okay? He eats dust, but never the harvest. It's a brutal work uh, to, to work an animal, but never give him the reward of its labors. Childbearing for the woman was cursed because that is the woman's work in a real sense. And like Adam is from the ground, and he is to work the ground and to keep the ground, the ground is his curse. Okay. So woman was from the side of man, and her curse is pain in childbirth as well. Now, think about this. Back to what we've talked about earlier. This illuminates that peculiar passage in 1 Timothy 2, doesn't it? Uh, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So the exhortation is that through persevering faith, love, and holiness with self-control, the curse of the garden may be reversed. But How? How is it going to be reversed? Well, how is a woman's childbirthing salvation, We might ask? Well, actually, it's not just woman's salvation. It's the salvation of all mankind. Because through the childbirth of the woman, salvation comes to all mankind because through the serpent's seed and the, the, uh, the seed of the woman would come this Messiah figure, Right? This is where we come to the New Testament. So through woman comes the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who becomes the new head and authority that reverses the work of the curse. So it's not that if you have a baby, you're saved. That's not what it's saying here. It's saying that the the glorious thing about woman is that she offers humanity, the Messiah. She gives man the thing that saves man. Right? She gives us Jesus Christ. He is the new man that supersedes the headship of Adam even. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Okay? But so also by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Okay? So Jesus is doing something that Adam had failed to do. The authority and headship of Adam is the bad news of humanity, we might say. But the good news of humanity is the authority and headship of Jesus who reestablishes the godly order of the household for human flourishing. He doesn't break down the order of the household when Jesus comes. He rebuilds what's broken and fallen down. He restores it. He fixes what man had messed up. He creates a new humanity that learns to slay the dragon when it comes to tempt. Right? Jesus is the husband that steps in and says, I don't think so, when that disorder is starting to happen. So, so what I'm saying, church, is that the only way that we're going to be able to have a well-ordered household is Jesus. It's not by looking back at Genesis and learning through our works how to rebuild our own gardens. It is depending upon our new authority, our new headship in Jesus Christ, who comes to reorder our own souls to help us welcome and receive and see the good order that he had already established in the beginning, recognize that we can't do it on our own and depend on him who has already done it for us. That's the good news of the household, not just the authority structures. That's not good news because we'll fail in that. Right? We need the good news of the gospel to see that Jesus has done it already for us and helps us now in our failure to learn to do it right through his grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have looked at a lot of things this morning, and I pray that you would help us to receive them rightly. I pray that you would order our souls and our minds that we might welcome the salvation that we see in Jesus Christ to help us see Scripture even through a a lens of a sanctified vision for our own salvation. Let us see how your creational order is good and how it's so good that you come to uh, defend it, how you come to uh, reestablish it and how you come to fix the brokenness that we have caused, not to start over, scratch the old and do something else. We thank you that Jesus restores, redeems, and reconciles all things to himself. That's our hope, Lord. We trust in you today, and we pray that you continue to help us as we're learning about this study of the household and how you call us to live lives in this world today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.